Section 15 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 10, verses 1 to 21. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. We here see with what solicitude this holy servant of God meets the causes of stumbling among the Jews, for that he may still continue to mitigate the harshness of any of his remarks in setting forth the rejection of the Jewish nation, he testifies, as before, his heart's desire for them, and proves it from the effect, because their salvation was carefully regarded by Paul in his prayers to the Lord. For this affection springs from a true and genuine love. He was indeed under the necessity of manifesting his love to his own nation, from which he was descended, perhaps on account of another cause, for his doctrine never would have been received by the Jews, had they considered him to be their professed enemy." they would have likewise suspected his conduct in revolting to the gentiles because his apostasy from the law would have been considered by them as we have hinted in the last chapter to have proceeded from his hatred to the jews for i bear them record the object of this attestation of paul in favour of his countrymen was to give them confidence in his attachment for it was a sufficiently just ground for his pitying and not hating them since he was fully persuaded that their error and the cause of their being deceived proceeded from ignorance not a hardened depravity of mind nay he saw that they were induced to persecute the kingdom of christ from some love and affection to the lord of all glory we may hence learn the result we must expect to experience from obeying and following our good intentions to allege these as the motives of our conduct when we are accused is generally considered to be a very proper excuse nay one of the very best very great numbers at the present time are prevented under this pretext from zealously and ardently devoting themselves to the study of the word of god because they think that sins arising from ignorance without any determined wickedness nay even with good intention will be excused and forgiven who among us can bear to hear any excuse offered in defence of the jews for crucifying the saviour of sinners for the barbarous cruelty they manifested towards the apostles and their unceasing efforts to destroy and extinguish the good news of everlasting life is it not in the power of the israelites to produce the same defence of their conduct in these instances of shocking persecution as we can of our neglect of the study of divine truth away with such vain and shuffling apologies derived from good intention if we seek god with our whole heart let us follow the way which alone leads to his enjoyment it is better according to augustine even to halt in the road than to run with all our might out of the proper path never let us forget the great truth impressed upon our minds by lactentius if we are sincerely desirous to become religious that no genuine religion can exist which is not combined with the study of the word of god when also we observe the wanderers even with a good intention sinking in ruin how many thousand deaths must await those who enjoying the divine illumination err from the paths of life and with the eyes of their mind open and the full consent of their wills for they being ignorant of god's righteousness lo how they erred from an inconsiderate zeal and a desire to exalt their own righteousness 
their entire ignorance of the divine righteousness plunged them in irretrievable destruction and a foolish confidence the apostle opposes the righteousness of god to that of man in the first place because they cannot stand together in consequence of their contrariety to each other so that the divine righteousness is subverted as soon as man elevates his own in the second place it is undoubtedly called the divine righteousness because it is a gift from the most high as it is termed human righteousness since men seek to attain it either by their own exertions or to recommend themselves by its means to the divine being no human being desirous to be justified in himself can possibly be subject to the righteousness of god is it not a sense of our own utter destitution which compels us to seek for righteousness from another men as already stated are clothed with the divine righteousness by faith because christ's righteousness is imputed paul casts great dishonour upon the pride which puffs up the self-conceit of hypocrites although they conceal it under the specious disguise of zeal and he declares they have cast off the yoke of the god of heaven and earth refuse to pay him allegiance and range themselves as adversaries and rebels to his spotless righteousness for christ is the end of the law compliment or as translated by erasmus perfection of the law is tolerably well suited to this passage yet since the common reading is almost universally received and does not ill agree with the context i leave it to my readers to make their own choice the apostle refutes the objection which might be formed that the jews had pursued the right path because they had devoted themselves to the righteousness of the law in proving the falsehood of this opinion paul shows the folly of those interpreters of the law who seek for justification by its works for the law was given to lead and conduct us to another righteousness every precept every promise every doctrine of the law looks to christ as the mark which ought to be kept constantly in view all the judicial ceremonial ritual and moral parts of the law are directed to the messiah as their completion nor can this be attained unless feeling ourselves to be destitute robbed and spoiled of all righteousness to be overwhelmed with shame and confusion of face on the remembrance of our manifold and aggravated transgressions we seek for gratuitous righteousness from our alone saviour and redeemer christ jesus the lord the consequence of such a view of the law as the jews maintained was a deserved censure of that people for their depraved abuse of the precepts of the most high who in their folly converted into a stumbling-block what was intended and calculated to afford them assistance nay it is evident that they had basely mutilated the law of god casting away the very soul of the statutes and testimonies of jehovah and snatched only at the dead body of the letter for notwithstanding the law promises a reward to all who observe and keep its precepts yet since it has thrown the whole race of mortals into one common sink of guilt and iniquity it has substituted a new righteousness in christ which is not acquired by the merits of our works but is presented to us gratuitously and received by faith thus the righteousness of faith as we have already seen in the first chapter received a testimony to its necessity and character from the law this is a striking passage to prove that the law in all its parts has respect to christ none can properly understand it who does not constantly aim at the messiah as the end and scope of the mosaic dispensation for moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law that the man which doeth those things shall live by them but the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven that is to bring christ down from above or who shall descend into the deep that is to bring up christ again from the dead but what saith it 
the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Paul now compares the righteousness of faith and works, with a view to show the very great disagreement which exists between these two different principles, for the opposition between contrary subjects shines forth with more brightness and distinctness by means of comparison. For this purpose the apostle does not quote the writings and predictions of the prophets, but the testimony of Moses, the great lawgiver of the Israelites, that they might understand the law not to have been given by Moses with a view to keep them relying on the confidence inspired by their works, but rather to lead them to Christ. For although Paul had cited the prophets as witnesses of his opinion, the difficulty still remained why the law should prescribe another form of righteousness. He discusses the subject with great adroitness and force, and establishes the righteousness of faith from the very doctrine of the law. The law is taken in a twofold sense when Paul makes it in this passage agree with faith, while in other parts of this epistle he opposes the righteousness of Christ to the righteousness of the law. At one time the law means the whole doctrine delivered by Moses, at another that part of it which peculiarly belonged to his ministry, and is contained in its precepts, rewards, and punishments. The chief office which Moses had generally assigned to him was the instruction of the people concerning the true rule of piety. Granting the truth of this position, it was his bounden duty to preach faith and repentance, but faith cannot be taught without offering the gratuitous promises of the divine mercy, and on this account he was obliged to be a preacher of the gospel, and it appears from many parts of his writings that he performed this part of his ministry with great fidelity. Moses could not teach the people repentance without showing them the necessary duties required by the Lord in their conduct and manner of life which are comprehended in the precepts of the law. It was his bounden duty to add promises and threatenings for the purpose of instilling into the minds of the people a love of righteousness and engrafting a hatred of iniquity. He depicted in lively colours the rewards which were laid up for the righteous, and denounced the woes and awful punishments which were reserved for sinners. The duty now remaining to be performed by the people was to consider in how many different ways the curses of God were incurred by disobedience, and how utterly impossible it was to be able to merit the blessings of God by works. In utter despair, therefore, of attaining happiness by their own righteousness, they fly to the harbour of divine goodness and to Christ himself, the only refuge for lost and ruined sinners. Such was the end and design of the ministry of Moses. Since, however, the promises of the gospel occur only in a scattered manner in Moses, and are attended with some obscurity, while the precepts and rewards appointed for the observers of the law more frequently abound, the function of teaching the character of the true righteousness of works is properly and peculiarly attributed to the Jewish lawgiver. He also points out the nature and character of the remuneration bestowed upon the observance of the law and of the vengeance and punishment which are threatened against and await transgression. In this manner, John one seventeen, Moses himself is compared with Christ when it is said the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Whenever the name of the law is taken in this limited and restricted sense, Moses is opposed to Christ, and we must then carefully consider what the law contains in itself when separated from the gospel. 
I must refer what I have said here concerning the righteousness of the law not to the whole office, duty, and function of Moses, but to that part of it which was peculiarly entrusted to the legislator of the descendants of Abraham. For Moses describes. Paul uses the word rights instead of describes. The passage quoted occurs Leviticus 18.5, where the Lord promises eternal life to the observers of his law. See Ezekiel 20.11. 13.21, Luke 10.28, Galatians 3.12. The Apostle took the passage in the sense of everlasting, not temporal life, although some interpreters confine it to the continuance of our existence in time. The following is the argument of the Apostle. Since no son or daughter of Adam can obtain the righteousness prescribed by the law without the exact fulfilment of all its parts, and all mankind are invariably very remote from the attainment of this perfection, it is impossible for any one to procure salvation by this method. Israel, therefore, displayed the very height of folly by expecting to reach the demands of the righteousness of the law from which we are all excluded. Paul argues that the promise is of no use because we are utterly unable to perform the condition which it requires. How vain the subtlety of those who endeavour to establish the righteousness of works by quoting the promises of the law. For a certain curse awaits us if we rely on these, and all hope of securing salvation is forever cut off. How low and mean is the folly and stupidity of the Roman Catholics, who consider it sufficient to establish the proof of merit by quoting with great keenness the bare promises as establishing the pointed issue. For, they say, unerring truth did not in vain promise life to his worshippers. Their blindness prevents them from observing that the promise of life was given with a view to make the sense and feeling of their transgressions so to impress on all a terror of death as to teach them to fly, being driven by their want of righteousness to the bosom of their Redeemer and Almighty Saviour. But the righteousness which is of faith. Two causes make this passage appear difficult, for Paul seems to have taken these words in an improper sense, and also changed them from the acceptation in which they were understood by Moses. We will consider the meaning of the words after we have carefully examined their application. The passage cited is taken from Deuteronomy 30.12, where Moses, as in the last quotation, is speaking concerning the doctrine of the law. Paul applies the words of Moses to the promises of the gospel. The difficulty is easily solved in the following manner. Moses shows how easy it is for the Jews to obtain life, since the will of God is not hidden from them, nor far off, but placed before them and constantly in their view. Had the apostle been speaking of the law alone, the argument would have been frivolous and irrelevant, for the law of God cannot be obeyed with greater facility when kept constantly in view than at a great distance. Moses, therefore, does not intend the law alone, but generally the whole doctrine of God, which also comprehends the gospel. For the word of the law, not even the least syllable of it, is never of itself in our heart, until it is engrafted by the faith of the gospel. Even after regeneration, the word of the law cannot be properly said to be in our hearts, because it requires perfection, from which the faithful themselves are also placed at a great distance. But the word of the gospel, although it does not entirely fill our heart, yet it takes up its abode there, for it offers the pardon of imperfection and defect. Moses is particularly desirous to commend, in the thirtieth and fourth chapters of Deuteronomy, God's great kindness to his people, because he had taken them under his discipline and government. This high commendation could not have been given on account of the law alone, 
the circumstance of moses preaching relative to the jews regulating their life and forming their conduct by the rule and command of the law is not opposed to this interpretation for the spirit of regeneration is united with the gratuitous righteousness of faith he infers the one from the other for the observance of the law springs from the faith of christ this opinion undoubtedly depends upon the principle laid down in the former part of the thirtieth chapter of deuteronomy that the lord will circumcise the heart of the jews and of their seed it is not difficult therefore to refute the objections of those who state that moses is treating in this chapter of good works i allow the truth of that statement but i assert there is no absurdity in deriving the observance of the law from its own fountain namely the righteousness of faith we must now explain the meaning of the words say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven moses mentions the heaven and sea as places more remote and which could not easily be approached by the labours and ingenuity of men paul as if some spiritual mystery was concealed under these words applies them to the death and resurrection of christ should any reader find fault with this interpretation as being too forced and subtle he should consider that the object of the apostle was not to explain the passage of moses very carefully but only to apply it to the subject he was discussing and examining he does not therefore quote the passage from deuteronomy with great accuracy but accommodates the testimony of moses more nearly to his own purpose by polishing the extracts from the original moses spoke of places inaccessible paul mentioned such places as are most concealed from our sight but can be viewed by the eye of faith if therefore you consider the amplification and embellishing of the passage as it occurs in moses you will not consider that the apostle had recourse to any violent or unreasonable change from the original but will rather acknowledge an elegant allusion is made to the sea and heaven without any loss of the sense we will now give a simple statement of the meaning of paul since the security and confidence of our salvation rest upon two foundations namely eternal life procured for us by our saviour and the victory of death which was completely triumphed over by jesus christ our lord paul teaches us in this passage that our faith by means of the word of the gospel relies on both these bases as supports which cannot be shaken for christ swallowed up death by dying on the cross and by his resurrection received the power of bestowing eternal life nor is there any object more worthy of our utmost and most unceasing desire than christ's death and resurrection which are now communicated to us in the gospel of truth paul instructs us that the death and resurrection of christ on which alone our salvation depends are included under the righteousness of faith and therefore clearly prove the last-mentioned divine gift to be abundantly sufficient for conferring upon us everlasting life and happiness who shall ascend into heaven means who knows whether the inheritance of an eternal and heavenly life may await us beyond the tomb who shall descend into the deep conveys the following sense who knows whether the everlasting destruction of the soul may not accompany and be associated with the death of our mortal body paul teaches us that both these doubts are removed by the righteousness of faith for the doubt proposed in the first question would bring christ down from his heavenly mansions that implied in the latter would bring up christ again from the dead for christ's ascension into heaven ought to inspire our faith with such assured confidence concerning our final possession of eternal life that the mere doubt of any infidel whether an heavenly inheritance be prepared for believers in whose name and on whose account jesus has already entered the gates of eternal bliss is almost the same as to drag down the saviour of the lost from his possession and inheritance in the mansions of glory 
In the same manner, since Jesus, who has the keys of hell and death, has entered the horrors of the abodes of endless misery, for the express purpose of delivering us from that region of Satan and the fallen angels, to entertain the smallest doubt whether believers still continue to be condemned to this unutterable misery, is to make void, nay, even to deny the death of the Son of God. But what saith it? Paul, after removing the obstacles to faith by his negative remarks, points out the means for obtaining righteousness by his affirmative observations. He uses an interrogative style for the purpose of exciting attention and showing the immense difference between the righteousness of the law and of the gospel, since the former presents itself to our observation at so great a distance as to prevent the whole race of Adam from deigning to approach the severity of its exactions while the latter approaches so near as to invite us, in a familiar manner, to make a trial of the enjoyments which divine grace is calculated to bestow. The word is nigh thee. The apostle, it must be observed, that he may prevent men's minds from going astray in circuitous paths, and being led off from salvation, prescribes the limits of the word of God, within whose precincts they are to confine all their thoughts, wills, and affections. He orders believers to be satisfied with the word of truth, and admonishes them to contemplate in this mirror the secrets of heaven, which are calculated to dazzle the sight with their splendor, to surprise and delight the ears with their melody and harmony of sounds, and to overwhelm the mind itself in wonder and astonishment. The minds of believers derive from this passage great consolation concerning the certainty of the word of God, for they can truly lean and assent unto it with no less confidence and security than they can depend on the most realizing and present sight and appearance of terrestrial objects. Moses, we must also remark, proposes the word of God on which the stability, calmness, and tranquillity of our confidence in salvation depend. That is, the word of faith. Paul is justified in assuming the word of faith, for the doctrine of the law can by no means give peace and tranquillity in the conscience, nor supply it with a foundation on which contentment ought to be built. Paul does not by any means exclude the other parts of the scriptures of truth, nor the very precepts of the law, but he is desirous to make righteousness mean the remission of sins, even without the exact obedience required by the law. The word of the gospel, therefore, which commands us not to merit righteousness by works, but to embrace it when offered by faith, is sufficient to give peace to the minds, and to establish the salvation of men. Faith, by metonymy, is used for promise, that is, the gospel itself, since it has relation to faith. For an antithesis must be here understood, by which the law is distinctly known from the gospel, and this mark of distinction induces us to conclude that as the law requires works, so the gospel requires men to bring nothing else but faith for the purpose of receiving the grace of God. The sentence which we preach is added to prevent any suspicion of an opposition between Moses and the apostle. For Paul testifies that he agrees very well with Moses in the ministry of the gospel, since the latter has also placed our happiness in nothing else than the gratuitous promise of divine grace. That if thou shalt confess... This is rather an allusion to Moses than a proper and true translation, for, in all probability, the Jewish lawgiver understood by the word mouth, taking a part for the whole, face or sight. The apostle made the following very happy allusion to the word mouth. Since the Lord proposes his word before our lips, we are undoubtedly called by him to make confession of the Lord Jesus. The word of God ought to bring forth fruit wherever it exists, and the confession of the mouth is fruit. Confession, by an inversion of order, not unfrequent in Scripture, is placed before faith. 
the best order would be to make confession of the mouth to follow confidence of the heart from which it springs but he makes a proper confession of jesus christ who adorns him with his own power and efficacy and acknowledges him to possess those qualities and characteristic excellencies which have been bestowed upon him by the father of lights and are described in the gospel paul makes an express mention of christ's resurrection alone in such a manner as not to exclude his death because the messiah by his resurrection perfectly completed all points required for our salvation for although redemption and satisfaction by which we are reconciled to god were finished by his death yet victory and triumph over sin death and satan were procured by his resurrection hence also we enjoy righteousness newness of life and the hope of a blessed immortality on this account the resurrection alone is often proposed for the purpose of inspiring us with confidence of our salvation not to withdraw our minds from contemplating the death and crucifixion of our redeemer but because it bears undoubted testimony to the fruit and effect of his death nay in fine the resurrection of the lamb of god contains in itself his death we have already touched on this subject in the sixth chapter besides paul does not merely require an historical faith of the death of christ but includes in the resurrection itself the end and design for which the son of god died why was christ risen from the dead has it not been the design of god the father to restore us all to life by raising the son of man from the grave notwithstanding christ was endowed with the power of raising himself yet the resurrection is generally in scripture assigned to god the father for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness this passage may assist us in understanding justification by faith for he shows that we obtain righteousness because we embrace the goodness of god offered us in the gospel and we are therefore just because we believe that god is propitious to us in christ the seat of faith it deserves to be observed is not placed in the brain but the heart not that i wish to enter into any dispute concerning the part of the body which is the seat of faith but since the word heart generally means a serious sincere and ardent affection i am desirous to show the confidence of faith to be a firm efficacious and operative principle in all the emotions and feelings of the soul not a mere naked notion of the head with the mouth confession is made unto salvation some may be surprised to find paul assign a portion of our salvation to faith after he has so repeatedly on former occasions testified that we are saved by faith alone we ought not to infer that confession is the cause of our salvation for the apostle merely wished to show how god accomplishes this great work namely by making faith which he hath put into our hearts to manifest and display itself by confession nay paul was simply desirous to point out the character of true faith from which confession springs as a fruit that none might pretend to make the vain and empty title of faith stand for faith itself for the heart ought to glow with zeal and ardour for god's glory in exact proportion as it has sent forth by the outward confession of the lips the light of its own flame every justified person is now in possession of salvation and his belief with the heart for salvation is not less than the confession which he makes with his mouth paul's distinction refers the cause of justification to faith and he afterwards shows what is required for the purpose of completing belief none can believe with the heart without making a confession with his mouth and this necessity for making confession a perpetual consequence of faith never implies the idea of ascribing salvation to the act of confession what answer will the proud boasters of our times make to this passage of paul who glory in a certain imaginary faith which is secreted in the inmost recesses of their hearts and completely supersedes the confession of the mouth as an empty and vain thing 
for it is the very summit of trifling to assert that fire exists where there is neither flame nor heat. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For the scripture saith, After he had assigned the causes why God had deservedly rejected the Jews, he returns to lay claim to the calling of the Gentiles, which forms another part of the question that he is now discussing. Since therefore Paul had pointed out the method by which men attain salvation, and this is equally common and open to the heathens and the Jews, he now, in the first place, by the universality of his expression, distinctly extends it to the Gentiles, and in the second, calls the heathens expressly to participate in its blessings. He repeats the quotation from Isaiah 28.16, for the purpose of giving more weight to his opinion, and to show at the same time how well the prophecies published concerning Christ agree with the law. For there is no difference. If the confidence of faith alone is required, wherever it is found, the kindness of God will there manifest itself for salvation, and in this case there will be no difference of country or nation. Paul here subjoins the most unanswerable reason, for if the Creator and Maker of the whole world is the God of all mankind, he will manifest his kindness and benignity to all, by whom he has been invoked and acknowledged as the supreme being. For since his mercy is immense, it must necessarily diffuse itself among all those by whom it has been desired and sought. Rich is here taken in an active sense, and means kind and beneficent. Is the riches of our Heavenly Father diminished by his liberality? Are our divine blessings lessened because others are enriched by the abundant affluence of his grace? There is therefore no occasion why some should envy the blessings of others, as if they were on this account deprived of any boon they themselves enjoyed. Although this reasoning was very forcible, yet he confirms it by the prophecy of Joel, which equally includes the whole world by his adopting a universal particle. The context in Joel will fully satisfy us that his prediction applies to this passage of Paul, Joel 2.28, not only on account of his prophesying concerning the kingdom of Christ, but because, having stated in the preface that the wrath of God would burst forth in a very awful manner, he promises, in the midst of the fierceness of the indignation of the God of hosts, salvation to all who shall call upon the name of the Lord. See Acts 1.24. The conclusion follows that the grace of God penetrates the very depths of death, if men cry with supplication from such an abyss. Who then will dare to drive the Gentiles away from a God of such infinite love? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, and bring glad tidings of good things! But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I will not long detain my reader in stating and refuting the opinions of others. I will freely state my own sentiments, and leave every one to adopt his own views of the passage. The mutual connection between the calling of the Gentiles and the ministry of Paul must be first considered, if we are desirous to understand the full meaning of this beautiful climax, since the applause due to his ministerial functions depended on the praise bestowed on the vocation of the heathens. 
it was absolutely necessary for paul to establish beyond doubt the calling of the gentiles as well as his own ministry that he might not appear to scatter abroad in a light and foolish manner the grace of god by withholding from the children of the highest the bread intended for their use while he gave it to dogs the apostle establishes both points at once a clear orderly and full examination of the different parts of the climax will enable us to understand more fully the coherence of the thread of the discourse both the jews and gentiles declare by their calling upon the name of the lord their belief in him for no human being can properly and truly call upon his name unless such invoking of the most high has been preceded by a just knowledge of his character moreover faith arises from the word of truth and the word of infinite holiness is preached in no climate and no nation but by the special providence and appointment of unerring wisdom faith therefore exists where god is invoked the seed of the divine word hath preceded the existence of faith and the calling of the father of all must be ushered in by preaching the everlasting gospel a clear and undoubted sign of the divine kindness is granted to that nation where the calling of god is attended with so powerful an effect and productive of such fruits it will hence be fully established that the gentiles who have been associated by the lord with the jews in their mutual participation in one common salvation ought not to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven for as the preaching of the gospel is the cause of faith among the gentiles so the divine mission by means of which god was desirous to provide for their salvation is the cause of preaching we will now carefully consider each sentence apart how shall they call paul was desirous to unite in this passage the calling upon god with faith since there is a most intimate connection between these two subjects paul was desirous to unite in this passage the calling upon god with faith since there is a most intimate connection between these two subjects the christian who calls on god enters the only haven of salvation and as a son betakes himself to the most certain kind of refuge even the bosom of the very best and most loving of fathers where he rests secure under the protection of his care is cherished and nourished by the love and indulgence of the god of all consolation is aided and assisted by his kindness and supported defended and protected by the power of omnipotence this high attainment is the privilege of a true child of god whose mind is so fully persuaded and assured of the fatherly kindness of the lord of heaven and earth as to feel the most undaunted courage and boldness in expecting to receive any kind of blessing at his hands the utmost confidence must necessarily be placed in the protection of infinite love by every believer who calls upon the lord since the apostle is only speaking of that kind of invoking jehovah which is approved by the giver of all good hypocrites also call on god but not for salvation since they do it without any feeling of true faith this clearly evinces the folly of all those schoolmen who present themselves before god with much doubt and hesitation because they do not rely with the confidence of faith upon his grace and mercy how very different are the sentiments of paul who assumes it as an acknowledged axiom that believers cannot offer up any supplications in an acceptable manner to the hearer of prayer unless they are certainly assured of success in making their approaches to the throne of grace for the apostle is not speaking of an implicit faith but of that unwavering certainty which our minds conceive and feel of the paternal kindness of the lord when he reconciles us to himself by his gospel and adopts us among his children we have an access opened for us to the father of glory by this alone confidence as paul also instructs us ephesians three twelve that we may safely infer is true faith which inspires its votaries with the delightful feeling of calling upon god 
for every believer who has once tasted the goodness of the prince of peace must always aspire to the love procured for him by jesus with every kind of prayer how shall they believe in him of whom the sum of the whole is that we are in some measure mute until the promise of god opens our mouth to pray and the prophet zechariah chapter thirteen verse nine observes the same order i will say unto them ye are my people and they shall say unto me thou art our god for it is not for us to form a god by our own imagination and no knowledge of him has the seal and impress of truth which is not derived from the scriptures of unerring wisdom if any one conceives god to be good merely from his own sense and feeling he is not under the influence of a certain and solid faith but of an unstable and fleeting imagination and on this account the word is required for our attaining a right knowledge of god the apostle speaks of no other word than what is preached because this is the usual manner which god takes for granting faith every disputant who argues from this passage that god cannot instil a knowledge of himself into the human race by any other method than preaching betrays an ignorance of the mind and sentiments of the apostle who paid a regard only to the ordinary dispensation of god without wishing to prescribe law to the operations of his grace how shall they preach unless they be sent paul means that wherever the lord of the harvest honours any nation by the preaching of the gospel he affords it a pledge and proof of his love that there is no preacher of the words of eternal life who has not been raised up as an herald of peace by the peculiar providence of the father of all and that no doubt can be entertained of god visiting any nation in which the gospel is preached and declared it would be waste of time to enter into a lengthened discussion concerning the lawful calling of any individual to fulfil the office of a preacher since this subject is not here considered by paul let us only keep this truth before our minds that the gospel is not poured down upon us by mere chance from the clouds but is introduced into every country by the hands of men sent by a divine commission for the express purpose of dispelling the clouds of superstition and breaking asunder the bonds of ignorance error and vice as it is written how beautiful are the feet it suits the view of the apostle to quote as illustrative of the subject under his consideration isaiah fifty two seven nahum one fifteen where the lord intending to give the hope of deliverance from slavery to his people adorns with very striking praise the arrival of the messengers who announce the glad tidings of emancipation by which the yoke would be broken off and the bonds burst asunder is the apostolic ministry of the gospel therefore by which the messenger brings the glad tidings of eternal life to be held in less esteem than the announcer of deliverance from bondage is not such a message from god since there is nothing to be desired in this world or worthy of our praise which is not the gift of his bountiful hand hence also we learn how much the preaching of the gospel is to be desired by all good men and to be held in the highest esteem and regard which is thus commended by the mouth of the lord the exalted praise bestowed by the lord of glory on this divine treasure of such incomparable value ought without doubt to rouse the minds of all men to an earnest and ardent desire of their becoming possessed of such an unspeakable blessing feet means by metonymy the arrival of messengers but they have not all obeyed the gospel this has no relation to the chain of reasoning pursued by paul in this climax nor does he repeat it in the conclusion that follows but he introduces it as a necessary answer to the objection which his opponents might adduce from the apostle's statement that the word always precedes faith in the order of divine dispensations as the crop follows the sowing of the seed 
Paul's opponents might adduce the argument as a mutual consequence from his reasoning, and infer that faith follows wherever the word of God exists, since, if this should be granted, Israel, which had never yet been deprived of the word of divine truth, would have sufficient cause for boasting. It was therefore necessary for Paul to show, by a passing hint, that many are called who are not chosen. The passage quoted by the Apostle is taken from Isaiah 53.1, compare John 12.38, where the prophet, in his preface to that admirable prediction concerning the death and kingdom of Christ, expresses his astonishment and wonder with respect to the small number of believers, which appeared to his prophetic spirit to be so small as to compel him to cry out, Lord, who hath believed our report, that is, our discourse which we preach. The Hebrew word used by the prophet on this occasion means discourse in a passive sense, and has been translated improperly both by the Septuagint and the Vulgate, report, in a sense which can easily be understood. Paul introduced this quotation for the purpose of preventing his readers from imagining that faith necessarily followed the preaching of the word. The prophet afterwards assigns the reason why belief does not invariably follow the proclaiming of the truth as it is in Jesus, when he adds, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he means that success only attends the preaching of the gospel when God shines into the heart by the light of his Holy Spirit and by the internal calling which is alone efficacious, and this peculiar gift bestowed on the elect only is thus distinguished from the external voice of the preacher. This clearly points out the folly of those reasoners who contend that all are indiscriminately chosen because the doctrine of salvation is universal, and God invites all men to himself without distinction, for the general nature of the promises does not alone and merely of itself make salvation common to all, but the peculiar revelation mentioned by the prophet rather restricts and limits salvation to the elect. Therefore faith cometh by hearing. We see the object which the Apostle had in view when he formed the beautiful climax just finished, namely, to show that wherever faith exists, the King of Glory hath already afforded a sign of his election, that the Lord of hosts has poured out his blessing by the ministry of the gospel for the purpose of enlightening the minds of its hearers by faith, and of instructing them to call upon his name, in consequence of the loving-kindness of the Most High, by which salvation is promised to all. In this way also a clear proof is given that the Gentiles are admitted by God to the participation of an eternal inheritance. This is a striking passage to show the efficacy of preaching, since it testifies that faith is produced by the proclamation of divine truth. It avails nothing, as the Apostle has acknowledged, of itself, but the Lord, whenever it is his good pleasure to work, uses the preached word as an instrument of his power. Certain it is that the human voice cannot by its own power penetrate the recesses of the soul, that too great honour would be bestowed on a mere mortal if the power of regenerating us was said to be his gift, and that the light of faith is of too sublime and elevated a nature to be conferred by man upon his fellow-beings. These remarks, however, do not prevent God from acting so efficaciously by the voice of man as to create faith in us by means of the human ministry of the word of truth. Faith, also, it must be observed, rests on no other foundation than the doctrine of divine truth, for Paul does not say that faith arises from any kind of doctrine, but he expressly limits it to the word of God, and this restriction would be absurd if faith could rest on the opinions of men for its foundation. Away, then, with all mere human inventions, where the certainty of faith is considered. This also puts an end to the popish imagination of an implicit faith, which separates belief from the written word. Does not the blasphemous opinion merit execration, which is taught by the Roman Catholics, 
that faith in the words of infinite wisdom continues suspended until it receives the support and sanction of the authority of the church but i say have they not heard yes verily their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world but i say did not israel know first moses saith i will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and by a foolish nation i will anger you but isaiah is very bold and saith i was found of them that sought me not i was made manifest unto them that asked not after me but to israel he saith all day long i have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people but i say have they not heard since the minds of men are imbued by preaching with a knowledge of god which of itself produces the invoking of the lord of glory the question which remains to be discussed is whether the truth of god was not preached to the gentiles for the jews were much displeased with the novelty of paul's conduct on account of his turning so suddenly to the heathens paul therefore proposes the question whether god had never before directed his voice to the gentiles and performed the office of teacher to the whole world for the purpose of showing that a common school was opened for all where the supreme being might form disciples for himself from every part of the world for the purpose of showing that a common school was opened for all where the supreme being might form disciples for himself from every part of the world paul quotes a passage from the psalmist psalm nineteen five which seems to have very little connection with the subject under his consideration the psalmist is not speaking in the quotation made by paul concerning apostles but the silent works of god in which he states the divine glory to be so manifestly declared and set forth with such splendour that they proclaim in language of their own the wonderful works and infinite power of the creator of heaven and earth ancient interpreters who have been also followed by the moderns explained the whole nineteenth psalm in consequence of this interpretation of paul in an allegorical sense without controversy according to their commentaries christ was like the sun the bridegroom coming out of his chamber and the apostles were the heavens interpreters of greater scrupulosity and modesty consider paul to have transferred by way of allusion to the apostles what the psalmist had in strict propriety confined to the creation of heaven i cannot however believe that paul had perverted this passage in such a manner since i find the servants of the lord treating the scriptures on all occasions with greater reverence and not forcing them to bend with too much freedom merely to serve a purpose i understand paul to quote this passage according to the peculiar and genuine meaning of the psalmist and the apostle reasons in the following manner god hath displayed to the heathens from the very commencement of the creation of the world his own divinity and although he has not done this by the preaching of the sons of adam yet he has accomplished it by the testimony of the works of creation for notwithstanding the gospel was then silent among the gentiles yet the whole workmanship of heaven and earth declared his glory and proclaimed the supreme being to be the author and creator of all things it is evident therefore that the lord during the period when he confined the favour of his covenant to israel had not so fully withdrawn from the heathens a knowledge of himself as to deprive them of every spark of divine light he made indeed a clearer display of himself at that period to his elect people who enjoyed all the freedom of intercourse with which domestic hearers are favoured and the lord of glory instructed the israelitish people with great familiarity from his sacred lips he directed however at a distance his instructions to the heathens by the voice of the heavens and proved by this prelude his desire finally also to reveal himself to them in the gospel of eternal love 
I know no reason why the Septuagint have translated the Hebrew word, which means both a line in a building and a line in writing, by a Greek expression that signifies voice. The repetition of the same idea in this beautiful psalm renders it, in my opinion, highly probable that the heavens are introduced by David as proclaiming aloud, both by writing and by speech, to the whole human race, in every clime and every land, the irresistible power of omnipotence. For the man after God's own heart instructs us, by their line and voice having gone out through all the earth, that the doctrine of the love and mercy of God is not confined to a few narrow corners and boundaries in this our world, but sounds aloud the grace of our Heavenly Father to the most distant and remote regions of the globe. But, I say, hath not Israel known. This objection of the opposite party is formed by instituting a comparison between the greater and less. Paul used the following reasoning that the heathens ought not to be excluded from the knowledge of God, since the Creator of all things had, although in an obscure, hidden, and concealed manner, disclosed himself to the Gentiles from the very beginning, or afforded them at least some taste of his truth. What then shall we say of Israel, which had been enlightened by a very different light of doctrine and divine knowledge? Whence is it that foreigners and heathens hasten with so much speed to enjoy a light which they see held up to their view at so great a distance, while the holy descendants of Abraham entirely reject what they behold, with so much nearness and with such great familiarity? We must never forget the following distinction pointed out by Moses, Deuteronomy 4.8. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things? that we call upon him for. Why then did not Israel acknowledge and follow the doctrine of the law in which it had been instructed? First, Moses saith. Paul adduces the testimony of Moses to prove that there was no absurdity in God preferring the heathens to the Jews. The passage is taken from Moses's celebrated song, Deuteronomy 32.25, where God upbraids the Jews on account of their perfidious conduct, and threatens to inflict severe punishment upon them, and to move them to jealousy by making the Gentiles partakers of the covenant, because the Jews had forsaken the rock that begat them, and bowed down before false gods. You have despised and rejected me, says the Lord of hosts, and transferred my dominion and honour to idols. To avenge this injury you have shown me, I will in turn substitute the Gentiles in your stead, and bestow on them what I have hitherto conferred on you as a blessing. This could not be carried into effect without rejecting the people of Israel, for the King of Glory displayed his jealousy mentioned by Moses by appointing for himself a nation from those which were not a people, and by raising up from nothing a new people to take possession of the place from which the Jews had been expelled, since they had forsaken the God of salvation and devoted themselves to idols. It forms no excuse for the Jews that they had not revolted on the advent of the Messiah to gross external idolatry, since they had profaned the whole worship of God by their inventions, nay, denied at last God the Father, revealed to them in his only begotten Son, Christ Jesus, which is the very highest kind of impiety. The expressions a foolish nation and no nation imply the same meaning, for, properly speaking, man who is devoid of the hope of heavenly life wants the essence of man. The beginning also and origin of life spring from the light of faith. Spiritual essence, therefore, flows from the new creation, and in this sense Paul calls believers the work of God, by which the Spirit regenerates them and transforms them into his image. 
From the name folly we infer that all the wisdom men enjoy without the word of God is mere vanity and folly. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, since this prophecy is more plain and distinct, Paul excites greater attention by speaking in the preface of Isaiah as writing with boldness. The following is the sense of the passage. The prophet has not written in a figurative or doubtful style, but has asserted in plain and clear language the calling of the Gentiles. Paul has separated in a few intervening words what occurs in Isaiah without any interruption. Isaiah 65, 1 and 2, where the Lord says the time would come when he would turn and show his grace to the Gentiles, and he immediately subjoins, as a reason, his being wearied with the rebellious obstinacy of Israel, which had become, in consequence of its too long continuance, altogether intolerable. The prophet thus writes, I am sought of them that asked not for me, I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. Isaiah uses the past tense instead of the future to point out the certainty of the event. I know some rabbis pervert the meaning of this entire passage as if God promised to grant the Jews repentance from their revolt. No doubt can be entertained of the prophet directing his address to strangers, for the context is confined to a people that was not called by his name. Isaiah therefore foretells without doubt that such as had formerly been strangers to the God of hosts would be received into his family by a new adoption. The calling, therefore, of the Gentiles shines forth with greater splendor as the general type of the calling of all believing children of the fountain of love. For no child of Adam can anticipate the love of infinite mercy, but we are all without exception snatched and delivered from the very depths of the abyss of death by his gratuitous kindness and clemency. No knowledge of the King of glory, no zeal or ardor for his worship, no sense, feeling, or judgment of his truth on the part of man contribute in any measure to usher in the kingdom of divine grace in the soul. It springs from the tender mercies of Jehovah alone. But of Israel he saith, The prophet assigns the reason why the supreme being goes to the Gentiles, namely the contempt with which the Jews treated his grace. Paul at the same time expressly states that God has reproved his elect people on account of their wickedness, and thus points out the blindness and hardness of heart of the Israelites. Paul has made a slight deviation from the Hebrew by substituting one particle for another, according to the phraseology of that language. The giver of all good says that he stretched forth his hands to Israel, which he never ceased to invite to himself by his holy word, and to allure by every kind of tenderness and love. These are the true methods by which God calls man to himself, since he thus affords them the surest marks and proofs of his benevolence. Unerring truth complains in this passage of the contempt shown to his doctrine, which was rendered more detestable by the fatherly solicitude with which he invited the sons of men to become partakers of his loving-kindness. The expression, stretched forth his hands, is very emphatic, reminding us of the love of a kind parent, stretching forth his arms to receive a returning prodigal into his bosom, and sending the ministers of the gospel to procure the conversion of repenting sinners." all day long or daily removes all cause for wondering that the god of all long-suffering should at last be worn out in doing the jews acts of goodness since his unceasing labours were despised and neglected jeremiah uses the same figure of speech jeremiah seven thirteen eleven seven when he says he rose up early and spoke unto the jews their unbelief is pointed out by two very appropriate expressions rebellion and obstinate contradiction 
the original may be translated stubborn or rebellious or according to erasmus and the vulgate unbelieving and disobedient since however isaiah accuses the jews of obstinacy adding that they walked in ways that were not good i feel assured that the two expressions of the septuagint stubborn or rebellious and gainsaying were used to convey what they considered the full force of the hebrew idiom because the israelites displayed their obstinacy in rejecting with obdurate scorn the holy admonitions and instructions of the prophets and at the same time exhibited pride the most unsubdued and bitterness of spirit the most relentless when they renounced the counsels of the most high End of section fifteen